I'm going to read from Matthew 7, uh, 7 through 11. And this is the Ask, Seek, Knock passage, one that you're probably familiar with. Um, here we go. Matthew 7, uh, verse, starting in verse 7, going through verse 11. The title is, Ask, and it will be given. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we can come to you, that Christ has paved a way so that there's no obstacle in coming to the Father and asking, seeking, and knocking. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, Father. May we learn from this passage. May your spirit convict and encourage us, Lord, with what it says. Uh, May we respond in a way that is honoring to you with our lives, and may the world know the gospel as you presented it through the life death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in this passage, Jesus, again, is addressing prayer and understanding the Father when it comes to our needs and his desires. Christ has spoken to prayer and to asking the Father for our needs a couple of different times already, right? We've already kind of addressed some things within the Lord's Prayer and some other passages. So as we discuss, and this is maybe a refresher for us so that we don't look at this passage as some disjointed couple of verses, but that we look at it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, what has already been said in regard to prayer and even approaching the Father and asking the the Father, um, we need to understand those things so that I'm just going to give us a real quick refresher in regard to that so that as we go into this passage, we don't think it means something that it doesn't mean, or we don't take it out of context and apply it in a way that wasn't ever intended. So I'll work through some of those things. So as we discussed a few weeks ago, uh, when going over the Lord's Prayer toward the beginning of Matthew 6, the primary reason for prayer, our coming before and engaging God, is about our hearts being changed and aligned with God's desires. He knows what we need before we ask, as it says in verse 8. We are never notifying him or reminding God of a need about which he does not sufficiently know through and through. through. Remember, God knows about our needs completely and sufficiently through and through. We also haven't now come to a place in the Sermon on the Mount where Christ takes a few verses, steps back, and lets his disciples and followers know that, all right, all right, time to pause on God getting the glory and enlightening all of you regarding the ways of the kingdom, so now it's your turn to put what you want on the table. This is where God just kind of, in essence, this isn't, this isn't what's happening, where he just kind of steps back and says, okay, God, you, you put there, you're the disciples, you put what you want on the table now. Jesus is not pausing here to suggest that God has built the housing framework for his kingdom. Now we just come in and pick the countertops, we pick the curtains, we pick the colors, the cabinets, the walls, wherever they are, uh, and paint them what we want to. This, this isn't what he's doing. Jesus is not telling us for two chapters what the kingdom should be like in order for us to mess it up with our input by asking God for whatever we want. In fact, that's exactly what he's been countering. 
an adulterous people who left the intentions of God for their own traditions and their own understanding of what is good for them and God's people. And clearly, we know how that has turned out. That's where we are. That's why Christ, throughout his sermon, has said, you have heard it said, and what I really meant was this, the intention of the law or the intention of God's heart, or as God has shared himself with people throughout the ages, this was the intent or the purpose of that. We've messed that up, and that's why Jesus is here now with the Sermon on the Mount going through and correcting their misunderstandings of what God actually said. Um, I think this is a really good place to stop and think through. Uh, This verse, Ask, Seek, Knock, has often been um, utilized out of context in some of the circles that I grew up in. uh, When I I say grew up, when I first came to encounter Christ, um, it was in movements where um, it was called, maybe we would know it as the prosperity gospel, or a gospel where we say, you know what, Um, whatever is on my heart or whatever is in my mind, because I'm a child of the king, I can name it and I can claim it to be my own. Whether that's anything from finances, from my health, from parking spaces, for, from having my best life now, whatever that might look like for me. However, I've conjured that up to be in my mind because now that I'm a child of the king, I now can just say, oh, those desires I had before, well, I guess now that they're, they're under the understanding of me being a child of God, now I can now claim them and want them to be my own and walk them out. And life will be honky-dory. That is not what this passage is about. The prosperity gospel has distorted um, the gospel in such a way that this passage is often misused, unfortunately, and not found in the context of a loving father and understanding what we actually should be asking for, that we would line up with the heart of God. So continuing on, at the end of chapter 6, Jesus equates the Gentiles with those who primarily and almost exclusively seek God for temporal, worldly things, while stirring up anxiety in the process. Yes, we all need clothes, we need food, we need drink. However, Jesus says not to be anxious as your father already knows those needs, again, stressing that we are missing the mark in understanding why we are coming before God and what we should be requesting. He wants you to seek so much more than those basic things, as that's where the Gentiles stopped. The Gentiles had come to God. They're uttering all kinds of things, making long uh, prayers, um, or they were, they, were, they were doing, the Gentiles actually were, excuse me, stressing the need for all of these other things. We were acting foolishly if we were just stressing that we need our physical needs met, these clothing, this food and such. Um, The Jews would go in corners and have these lofty prayers, in which case they thought they were reaching God's ears, but they were only reaching those who actually heard them here on earth. And God's saying, "Uh, okay, enough about all of that. That that is actually not what I'm wanting you to seek. I I understand that there are needs there, um, which can create anxieties if you fixate on them, but God is saying, no, 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 no. That's not what it is. The Father wants you to first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness at the end of chapter 6 and verse 33. These are the things which not only please the Father, but the Father longs to give these kingdom things to us. And then these other temporal things, which God already knows about intimately, will be taken care of as well. 
So these are the things that we understand. And when we come to the Father, which already have been discussed in chapter 6 um, of the Lord's Prayer and going on and what causes us anxious things about our temporal, physical needs, God says, seek the kingdom first, and then these things will be added to. I got these things covered. But understand the heart of God and why you're approaching me. These are the things I want you to seek. His kingdom and his righteousness. That's what he desires. So now we come to this part of the sermon where Jesus wants to reshape our minds and reshape our hearts when it comes to pursuing the Father in prayer and in and what we ask of him. Again, I'll, I'll go with the first two verses as we walk through the passage. Matthew uh, chapter 7, just verse 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. We can easily talk about the focus being on us in this passage. After all, we're the ones who are asking, we're the ones who are seeking, and we're the ones who are knocking, right? However, I want to point out three things we can learn about the Father that Jesus is emphasizing within this, um, these few verses here. Number one, we learn that the Father commands us to continually come to him in prayer. We are to ask, seek, and knock. He commands us to do so. Oftentimes, I think that we equate his commands in Scripture to things that are negative and that we don't want to do. But the the reality is, within this prayer, God is commanding us to come to him and ask him. As we know, at the end of the passage, it's what? For our good. He's actually commanding us to do something that's for our good. He would not do or ask us or command us to do something that is for our bad. We are created to ask We are contingent beings, and God makes provision for us through means of prayer. Jesus is saying the Father wants us to ask. He wants us to seek. He wants us to knock. There's almost an all-encompassing persistence as our senses are exponentially engaged pursuing God. We're asking. We're seeking. We're knocking on the door. We're all in as we seek the Father. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to ask, knowing we are contingent beings. Alistair Begg says this, prayer reminds us of who we are and who our Father is. Prayer expresses our dependence and it reinforces our dependence. In other words, when we pray, we are showing our dependence on God Um, that he is, uh, excuse me, We, we are saying that when we pray, we are showing our dependence on God is a designed reality. It both reflects that we are consistently needy people, that we're consistently needy people, and it reflects an understanding that the Father is the only one who can fulfill those needs again and again and again And again, we're created with our need. We're created to go back to our Father, our source, again and again and again and again. That's the nature of our relationship. He the creator, we the created, us contingent, wholly reliant upon God again and again and again. And the great thing is our needs, though they don't run out, God's blessings and gifts and what we ask of him never runs out. Never runs out. The well never runs dry. And these words, ask, seek, and knock, understand that they are in the present imperative. So we are to understand that this is a continual asking, that this is a continual seeking, and a continual knocking that the Father desires of his children. Jesus is saying, ask, seek, knock. 
Get up again. Ask, seek, knock. Get up again. Ask, seek, knock. Our Father is there. He wants us to ask. We're created to do so, almost with this impulse to go to Him. We understand what it looks like to go to others and to go to outside of God and try to have our needs met when we ask and we are met with something hollow and empty. God says, no, that is not me, as we'll look at in these passages. Get up and ask me. I'm the source. I created you. I know what you need. Ask of me. Number two, we learn that the Father hears us when we pray. This to be completely honest with you, is a sermon in and of itself, that the Father hears us when we pray, that when we utter words to our Father to ask of Him, that He hears us, that it goes specifically to Him. He gets it. Verses 9 through 11 says this, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? I love in this passage that it says, if they ask him for a bread, will he give him a stone? As if he didn't hear him. Now, God knows that if you ask him for bread, something uh, that is a daily need, or ask him for a fish, something that is a daily need food, God hears what your specific request is. He gets it. It goes to his ear. To know that our Father, God of creation, takes time to have his ear bent on his children's voices, that he doesn't just resign himself to our fledgling tongues attempt to string together words that ultimately form inadequate inadequate expressions. No, the Father hears us because he wants us to be heard. We are his children. He's designed our voices with express intent to communicate to him our needs in prayer. Again, we are his children. He's designed our voices with the express intent to communicate to him our needs in prayer. I think we understand this, especially as parents. And if not as parents, as a child, as we grow up, we come to understand this. But as parents, when we have our children and they're very young and they're babies and they are crying out in the night, your ear is accustomed to hearing that cry, that want, that ask for something, whether that is to be consoled, whether that is to be fed, whether that is to be um, understood as, let me teach you how to get your pacifier. Let me teach you how to roll on the other side. Let me teach you how to soothe. However you parent, I'm not going there, but what I'm saying is that your ear is accustomed to hearing uh, your, your child's voice. However, we are human, and as we grow older and as our children grow older, that voice becomes ever more requesting and ever more resounding, and the sound of that cute cooing and that, the sound of that cry, which you're so happy because it suggests he has breath, and the sound of those lungs that produce such volume in the house that echoes through the room and every room, our ears become deaf. Our ears become selective on what we hear. We, as parents, become encompassed with other things in life other than our children's um, needs. Their beck and call gets softer and softer. Now, at least that was in my life. Maybe you are perfect parents and maybe you understood and this never happened to you, but we often become distracted 
as parents that happens. We go from being finely attuned to eventually wearing to then distracted, and sometimes we don't even hear their voice and they're right in front of us or on the seat next to us. God's energy, his patience, his kindness, and perfect love and care does not wane. It does not run dry like ours can. The Father hears his children time and time again. The dial on this channel of your life does not need to be tuned any more precisely as if the reception has gone bad because you have traveled too far away from the source. As Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your love or flee from your ear's presence in essence? The answer to that rhetorical question is nowhere. There's nowhere you can go where God's ear is not bent to the call of his child. He hears it. He hears it perfectly. He knows what it is. He knows the frequency it's on. He knows his children. The Father hears us. His ear is tuned to his child's voice. Hebrews 11.6 tells us this, And without faith it's impossible to please him. Okay, we hear that a lot. That's just part of the verse. The remainder of that verse says this, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The author of Hebrews links our faith not only to our understanding of God, but to his nature as a giver or a rewarder of those who seek him. The author is saying that we need to understand by faith that he actually exists and our petitions do not fall on deaf ears to an apathetically distant God. That's not how the Father loves his children. And that's not how God has moved among his chosen people from generation to generation as the entirety of chapter 11 of Hebrews would support. Understanding that God hears us helps increase our faith. In other words, our faith is attached to the understanding that he hears us, and our faith is increased because of it. And our faith, um, our faith is increased in the very nature of our gracious, faithful, and giving God. If we don't grasp that our Father hears us, and we suggest that it's useless to pray because, well, after all, God doesn't care about my situation, my needs, or my wants, or what's going on in my world, um, we actually don't please him because we don't really know him. In essence, you are praying to a God that doesn't exist because you've made him up in your mind to think in a way or think um, as such that he's not listening or he's not there or he doesn't care or it's falling on deaf ears is saying that the God of Scripture, who's faithful throughout it, as Hebrews 11 talks about the men of faith all throughout the Old Testament, the ones that we know and the ones that we've never even heard of, is inconsistent with the God of the Bible. Thus, if we're describing him that way or coming to him in such a way, we're not coming to him in faith and we're not even coming to the God of Scripture. He's saying you must understand and have your faith increased by the fact that God hears his children. God hears his children. Again, read, read Hebrews chapter 11 and understand that God consistently met the meager faith of his people precisely because they trusted that God heard their cry and provided abundantly even when they couldn't see it. 
their trust and their faith in a God who was actually there, who actually heard, did not wane, even when they couldn't see the results of their prayers and their asking and their desires. Even within the context of 400 years between the Testaments, when there was a silence in regard to Scripture being written and a prophetic voice being heard prior to John the Baptist, God was faithfully there, doing a work. And his people needed to trust that process that God had in his plan. God hears his people's prayers. Jesus wants his disciples to know that the way in which the kingdom of God operates is with a king who cares about his people and shows that by hearing their petitions. They do not have to wait for approval. Simply by being in his kingdom gives you the right to be in his presence, and they would soon learn that way was paid for them by the blood of Jesus Christ. Third and final point. We learn that the Father gives us good gifts. It's not just that he wants us to come and ask. It's not just that he hears us when we actually ask, that he's tuned into the voice of his children in particular, but he responds by giving us good things. As the passage states, he, he doesn't sit there and give, uh, we ask for bread, he gives us a stone, and we ask for something, he gives us something that is detrimental to our lives. No, when we ask of him, he gives us good things. Good things. John Stott says this, the reason why God's giving depends on our asking is neither because God is ignorant until we inform him or because God is reluctant until we persuade him. The reason has to do with us and not with God. It has to do with our readiness or unreadiness to receive and not with his readiness to give. In other words, generally, it's our hearts who don't understand the heart of God, um, and thus our readiness or unreadiness to receive what he has, or even describe it as good, that's the issue. Our hearts are the issue when we come before God. God is waiting for good, good things. The only thing that comes from God is good. He's the very definition of good. So that which emanates or comes from him as he communicates to his children is good. We're the ones who mess it up. We're the ones who mess up the translation or the interpretation as he does give us things in life. God is not the censorious judge as Pastor Aaron described in last week's passage, who is so critical that he finds too many faults with his children and in turn withholds that which is good from us. I think oftentimes we have this picture of God that says, you know what, I see your life, it doesn't quite measure up today, or at least hasn't measured enough for me to give you a good gift. I'm either going to withhold my gifts or I'm going to give you something that is going to cause penalty. I'm now going to make sure that this doesn't happen in your life. No, that would be judgment. Okay, God is the judge, but he already has cast that judgment upon Christ. That judging is done with. We now walk in light of uh, the yoke that is light in our lives, um, that his burdens aren't there, that the judgment was put all on Christ. So we walk understanding that we can come to God, ask forgiveness, and he doesn't withhold any good thing from us. It is not contingent upon our behavior in that when we come to him, he still wants to bless us. He still wants to give us good things. 
In verse 11, Jesus is using the how much more comparison as he often does, showing that God's nature and character to his children is not even on the same page as us. If we know how to give good gifts as these human parents, how much more does God? There's really not a scale that's going on there as if, eh, it's just a, it's, no, it's not even on the same scale. He's just trying to say, in other words, that God, we who are evil in our hearts, we who are bent in on ourselves, if we know how to give good gifts to our children when they ask, how much more does God, who is perfect, who is bent in on his glory and using us and calling us for his own purposes, um, including us in that, how much more does he know how to give good gifts to his children? He's more than willing to give us kingdom things because we are children of the king, right? He's invited us into that kingdom. We hear this throughout the Psalms as the various psalmists reflect upon God's goodness regardless of their situation. Psalm 103 verses 1 through 5 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. This is a psalmist reflecting upon the reality that God restores our soul. He blesses us with good. He's steadfast in doing so. He satisfies us. We're not going to ask for bread and him not satisfy where that actual hunger comes from. God is good like that. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's just resonating how amazing God is that even though... um, Uh, that we might be going through difficult times, that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And not only that, it's not just um, the benefit of being in his presence and having that joy. At his right hand, he decides to say, there are pleasures forevermore. They don't stop. Look behind the next one. Look behind the next. There's more and more. There's more where that comes from. And it is all through Jesus who now is at the right hand of God. The Father, there's pleasures forevermore. Psalm 34, 8 says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is the psalmist proclaiming that the Lord is good in the midst of what? He's taking refuge. He's being assaulted. There is something that is coming against him where he needs the refuge of God the Father. And in the midst of that, he understands God in his presence, not from the external, but from where he is in the Father that the Lord is good. Taste and see. come to him. Not only will you find the refuge that you need, but you will find that he is good. Taste and see that he is. Yet, in this passage, though God truly is good, he does not give us all that we ask. <laughs> and thank God for that. We know that every prayer we bring to the Father is not answered in the affirmative. Every sickness is not healed. Every promotion is not given. Every son, daughter, father, or mother does not turn to Christ. Think about it. If what our hearts want were given to us all the time, Job 
would have been dead much earlier and deprived us of seeing God's sovereign faithfulness. Joseph would find best friends in his brothers while they all died of starvation. Paul would have had his thorn removed and we would never be able to read of God's strength and weakness through suffering. James and John would have remained arrogant and graceless while burning down villages left and right for rejecting Christ. Peter would have kept Jesus from the cross after rebuking him, and we'd still be in sin without hope. That would be a tragedy. In James 4, 1 through 4, um, he gets to the heart of the matter in response to, and I think reflecting upon, this is a brother of Jesus, and James is reflecting probably upon the Sermon on the Mount because there's so many consistencies within his book in regard to that. And this is what he says in James 4, 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James gets right to the heart of where a lot of people approach this passage and even approach the Father that now that salvation has happened and they can call themselves a Christian and maybe they pray to prayer and they're attempting to maybe even grow in their understanding. They take this verse and they say, now I'm just going to come to God and ask for whatever my heart feels at the moment. Our feelings take over and we suggest that whatever our feelings or our passions are, as James alludes to, that your passions within us, we then bring forth our passions before God and almost asking his blessing upon them, the good. God, give me what my heart de desires. Father, Father, give me more money. No, give me promotions. No, give me that right person. Father, this is where my heart wants to find true love. So let me leave my wife and do that. No? Let me take the same sex and say, you are now holy unto me because I'm passionate for you. No, we cannot define this on our terms and the passions of our heart. Or other words, James says, we are asking wrongly. And when we ask wrongly, strifes and quarrels and fights, covetousness, all of this comes about from when we ask from what the passions of our hearts are. God says, no, you have not because you ask not, and more specifically because you ask wrongly in order to spend it on our passions. That is what God wants us not to do. So our hearts, thank God, when we come before him, he doesn't answer every single one of our requests to the affirmative. Thank the Lord. I'm sure you have many examples of God not giving you what you asked for, and even now you can see that it was a good thing. In your life, as you look back, I'm sure that you've seen God, um, that in, moments, in, the, in, in the moments when you were asking, felt frustrated because you didn't have an answer or the answer you wanted, but now in hindsight, even see some of the reasons why. And that can be comforting, but there are often times where you actually don't even get an answer as to why you didn't get, didn't have, didn't pursue, wasn't offered, Things didn't change as quickly, and you don't have that answer. 
but we need to trust God in the process. Yet with all that we're conjuring up in our minds, so the things that we've asked for, what are those things? Um, The things asked for and not received, just what kinds of gifts in this particular passage is Jesus referring to that we should be asking for? I think it's better to shed light on this on one of the Synoptic Gospels, Luke, um, in the passage, Luke 11, 9 through 13. I think it sheds light on to what these gifts in particular are, because maybe as I've uh, mentioned these in, in this passage, or maybe as you've read it, you're conjuring up things, gifts, or things that you've asked for that God hasn't met. I want to try to put feet on what Christ meant by asking for or, or giving these gifts to you or these things to you. Luke 11, 9 through 13 says this, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if this son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who asks? We can see that Luke kind of emphasizes something in particular when Jesus stated this. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who asks? Who ask? Luke's gospel emphasizes the work of the Spirit. I think we understand that and we realize that um, why Luke was commissioned by God's Spirit to write uh, the book of Acts as well, recording how the Spirit worked in the, the young church. But I think this helps with the understanding both, um, the under, this helps in us understanding both the heart of the Father and the heart of His children when it comes to our asking and His giving. Let me explain. God only gives according to His will, right? Uh, we need Uh, We need to know God first in order to understand his heart as it compares to our desires. In other words, um, in order to truly know what's good for us, what to ask, what to seek, um, when to knock or what to knock for, we need to know God. We need to know his heart. We need to know what he wants. If Jeremiah says that our hearts are not only desperately sick, but add to that, he says that they're deceitful above all things. And if Isaiah says that our righteous deeds, I love this, are like a polluted garment, that's a very gracious way of saying, um, uh, filthy rags are even worse. If Isaiah and Jeremiah say that, we need someone else, namely God through his spirit, influencing our petitions, influencing our hearts, influencing how um, and what we come to God with. If we know God alone is good, as I said before, in Mark chapter 10, he says, Mark chapter 10, he says that, and our hearts are inclined towards ourselves and not God, then our hearts need to be influenced and molded by his spirit in order for our mouths to ask for what is truly good. When we are filled with God's spirit and are aligned with what we know is good for us, the Father is ready and willing to give us all that we want. Why? Because it glorifies the Father. It makes God so happy that he can include us in the process of glorifying him. Thus, he departs his spirit in every single believer. 
Other believers aren't more special. There's not a a more impartation of God's Spirit uh, to be used by God. God imparts the Spirit to all who call on Him and put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. He is the one that now is at the right hand of God, filtering even what we pray to Him. And when we do come to the Father, we do so um, by the urging of the Spirit. As His Spirit draws us to Himself through Christ, we then utter the things that we are to pray for. And even in our brokenness, that even though we ask for things sometimes that we shouldn't, or are offline with what His will is for us, for us, or His desires for us as a whole, the great thing is we have a mediator in Jesus Christ, the one giving us the Sermon on the Mount. He knows that He will be there to translate what we say to the Father, so that the Father hears exactly what we need. It's urged by the Spirit, it's translated by the Son who mediates for us to the Father, and then in response, God the Father then speaks through the Son to the Spirit and meets our needs, and they are all good. It is never bad, it is never for our detriment, but it is for God's glory, and He includes us in the process. That's why they are satisfying. That's why they are more satisfying than if we look around us at what the world is asking for that they will never satisfy. It will be empty. They will be left wanting. But to take refuge, as the psalmist says, and to find and taste and see that the Lord is good and that he's provided a way for us, that is where we understand the goodness of what God gives us through his Spirit and all the benefits therein. It's not just that he gives the Spirit. It's that the Spirit, if we are in the vine, as John 15 says, produces fruit. And then the Spirit's outworking is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, as Galatians 5 says. Those fruits are in us being produced and reproduced as we continue to come to God. Those good things are satisfying because they don't end. As in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets the woman at the well, it's living water that we will thirst no more. Why? Because it's reproducing. God is calling us to him, and he's uh, urging us to ask of them because he's reproducing his goodness in and through us by his Spirit because of the work of the Son and what he's done and what the cross has given to us. We now have access, and Jesus says that the Father wants us to ask. He hears And in response, he gives us good things. I'm going to close by thinking on Psalm 37.4. It paints a wonderful progression of a worshiper's heart in prayer. It says this, Delight yourselves, or delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The psalmist has a correct understanding of finding delight in the one who holds his very heart as the Father's attention, his, his presence causes such delight. Just being in the Father's presence causes such delight. God molds our hearts to look more like his as we seek him. Then his desires flow from a heart influenced by the hands of our maker, like the potter and the clay. As he shapes us, we now know better how we are to be used and thus ask for things accordingly saying, God, I am yours, I am in your presence, 
oh, that's how you're making me and changing me? I'm going to ask in accordance with what you want because you will be most glorified, I know, and I will be most satisfied because I'm connected to you by your Spirit when I ask for things that you want. It almost sounds counterintuitive. Wait, my flesh doesn't get what it wants? No, that's the point. Our flesh is perishing but our spirits will live on forever. And those are the things, uh, those treasures, those things that we ask for, those are the things that are stored up in heaven. That as we seek God, that he loves, that he's a good father, that he, he gives us these good things. He wants us to come to him time and again, knowing that we're wholly reliant on him. So church, are you asking? Are you seeking? Are you knocking? Is your understanding of the Father one in which you grasp the goodness of God who sent his Son in order to pave the way for you to come freely and boldly into the throne of grace in order to receive the gifts the Spirit has as God provides all of our needs and wants according to his riches and glory which are in Christ Jesus? Do we pursue our loving Father for those things in this time during disruption, in this time that we're not gathering, in this time where it's absolutely uncomfortable on many facets. We are now in a time that can be the most fertile for the enemy and our flesh to respond in frustration, aggravation, discord, discord among family, hatred towards those who God has put in charge to steward us as a people, our governments, whether it be local or federal or state. However, we need to focus on our good Father who desires for us to ask of him during this time so that we may be in line with the work that his Spirit is doing in each of our lives. Church, Jesus calls on us. He commands us to come to the Father as children. He's paved the way. We're allowed to be there, boldly so, and to ask of him. And that we would know what his spirit desires because we bask in the glory and the goodness of his presence. And that we delight in that. And in turn, we know what to ask for. We know our needs are supplied abundantly. We don't have anxiety. We know that he is God, that he is holy, and that he is good. We ask for things that are kingdom-minded. We ask for things that are righteousness-minded. And he will give them to us more than we could ever hope or think. Let God work in you by his spirit as you ask and seek him. The Father is good. Know that today, children. Know that today, church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so good to us. As the song says, you're a good, good father. That's who you are by definition. That is your attribute. That is what flows from you. Father, may we understand that as we look at our circumstance, as we look at our life, as we look at sometimes what we, when we don't hear the answers, Lord, help us know that you are good and that in due time, either we will understand what your heart is and change how we ask, or we will understand that there's sufficiency at the foot of the cross, knowing that Jesus paid it all, that whether we are in want, as Apostle Paul says, or whether that we have plenty, that we will be fine and content knowing that you are enough. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for letting us know that we should ask and that we have a Father who hears us and meets us with good things. In Jesus' name, amen.